Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Among all the rest, young Bolivar stood out for his piercing voice, his agitated, imperious manner, and especially for the unforgettable fire in his eyes, which burned with all the intensity of a conquistador's or a visionary's. I listened to him speak, and although I didn't know the language perfectly, I understood him to say that he would die before he would allow his country to be a slave to Spain. He was a commanding presence in that hall, and everyone seemed to know it. They told me he was a nobleman of considerable wealth, but that he was willing to give all of it for his country's freedom. It seemed to me that the young man was destined, either for an early death or extraordinary heroism. Richard Colburn, 1813 200 years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at secondDecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 33, Bolivar, Part 1 Early on the morning of April 19, 1810, Maundy Thursday, an important Christian holiday, especially among Catholics, a group of about 100 local politicians and activists marched on the city hall in Caracas, Venezuela. Although it was barely dawn, the mob forced the Captain General of Venezuela, Field Marshal Vincente Emparan, to come to the council chamber. The crowd told him they wanted a junta, a council of local officials that would govern Venezuela autonomously, and they wanted Emperan to lead it. The meeting was contentious. Before long, the deacon of the local cathedral, José Cortés de Matariaga, a descendant of Hernán Cortés, the conquistador who conquered the Aztecs in 1521, joined the meeting and told the assembled activists that putting Emperan in charge of the junta was a terrible idea. Cortés said that the people of Venezuela hated him. After all, he was a representative of the new government of Spain, the Regency, a puppet government installed by Napoleon, who'd taken over Spain in 1808. Emperan begged to differ. There was a crowd gathered outside the city hall in the street below. Emperan went to the balcony and asked the crowd if they accepted the rule of the Regency. A chorus of boos and shouting went up from the crowd. They didn't want it, and they didn't want Emperan. The mob made that abundantly clear. 
Within two days, Emperon and his toadies had fled the country, and the Supreme Junta of Caracas was now in charge. Almost 300 years of Spanish colonial rule in Venezuela was effectively, if not officially, over. This specific part of the revolution was more or less peaceful, but no one should have been under any illusions that Spain was going to give up her possessions in the New World peacefully. One man who understood this, and who would accomplish more than any other single person the separation of Latin America from Spain, was the citizen of Caracas, a military-trained nobleman named Simon Bolivar. Although historical sources differ, he appears not to have been present at the raucous meeting of the Caracas Cabildo on that April morning, but what happened there certainly changed his life and fortunes. Within three months of the coup, Bolivar, together with four other envoys, were sailing across the Atlantic on a mission to gain recognition from Great Britain for the new revolutionary government of Venezuela. This was far from the end of Bolivar's journey, and even far from the beginning, too, but it's as good a place as any to dive into the almost incredible story of this amazing man, and how he changed the world. Simón Bolívar is one of the most important and pivotal personalities in the entire second decade, indeed in all of the 19th century. Country after country in Latin America owes its independence more or less to him, and one of those countries, Bolivia, was even named after him. Few giants of history cast so long a shadow. But in addition to being a general, a political figure, and a liberator, Simón Bolívar was also a man, a very passionate and sensitive one. For the next three episodes of the Second Decade podcast, we'll be delving deep into both of Bolívar's stories, the political and the personal, and we'll be trying to make sense of one of the most pivotal revolutions that helped give the era its name, the Age of Revolutions. So join me now for the first part of Simón Bolívar. Good evening. As is usual, before we get to the subject of tonight's show, a few announcements. Second Decade is nearing the end of its second season. If all goes according to plan, and I realize the best laid plans don't often come off, if all goes according to plan, there will be five more episodes of the show this season, counting this one, before I take a break for a couple of months. There will be three episodes in this mini-series on Simone Bolivar, and then two out of three episodes in another three-part series on Napoleon will finish out the season. But the season will end, appropriately enough, with a cliffhanger. As much of a cliffhanger as you can have in a show about events that happened 200 years ago. Anyway, that's what's happening in the next few weeks and months. I am fully intending that Second Decade comes back for a third season in the fall, beginning with episode 38. Secondly, speaking of best laid plans, I am not going to have the Second Decade book out before the end of the second season. I just have too much going on. The project is continuing, though. It'll be out eventually, but I'm just not sure when. Hopefully I can turn my attention to it during the summer hiatus. Third, I have a new podcast. It's not a history show, but rather an audio drama, science fiction. It's called Double Perigee, and you can find it now on iTunes, Google Play, and the usual places where podcasts live. Double Perigee is the story of an unlikely hero trying to find peace, and himself, in a war-torn galaxy. It's based on a novel I wrote many years ago, and it's going to be a fun project. So if you like stories in audio format, which are having a huge revival now thanks to the popularity of podcasts, check out Double Perigee. That's P-E-R-I-G-E-E. 
Fourth, I'm soon going to be offering a slate of online classes. I've taught history online a couple of times now, most notably an eight-week course on World War II that began this winter. I'm developing a brand new website, thathistoryguy.com, as a platform for the classes taught entirely online, no college credit, but just fun classes for history enthusiasts. They're relatively inexpensive, and you will get your money's worth. From time to time, now this is still in the works, but from time to time I may offer short free classes, believe it or not, on Twitch. I started a Twitch channel for my teaching. That's a work in progress. And now, on to the business at hand. Simone Bolivar is one of the reasons why the Second Decade podcast exists in the first place. Two years ago, when I started this show, I chose to focus on the decade of the 18-teens in part because I thought people needed to know about the incredible importance of the changes that happened in that 10-year period. If you look at how different the world was in 1820 compared to what it was like in 1810, it really is truly amazing. And one of the biggest differences was the collapse of the Spanish colonial empire in Latin America. The story of that collapse and the incredible change that swept across fully one quarter of the inhabited world is the story of Simón Bolívar. He truly is one of the great giants of this period. The fact that it has taken me 33 episodes to get to him is not a reflection on his importance. In fact, exactly the opposite is true. Napoleon, the other 800-pound gorilla in the second decade, is a relatively known quantity. I could probably get on my Twitch channel right now and teach you a class on Napoleon, his rise and fall, main events of his life and career, and I could probably do it without notes, not to brag. It might not be super detailed, but even if you're just a casual student of European history, you can usually tell your Austerlitz from your Borodino, and you would know generally what happened to Boney in Russia in 1812 without even going back to listen to my three-part series on it. But what do you know about Simone Bolivar? I admit, even as a PhD historian, I don't know nearly as much as I should, or at least I didn't until I started the research for this miniseries. Getting to know enough about Bolivar's life and career to do it justice on this show is the reason I kept putting off doing this series. Well, thanks largely to Marie Arana and several other fine scholars, I now know, as they say, enough to be dangerous. I'm going to begin with Bolivar where I left him at the top of this episode, en route to England to seek diplomatic recognition of Venezuela's new junta. Bolivar, an extremely wealthy nobleman who represented the elite of Venezuelan society, was the senior envoy of a group of four sent on this mission, which was peculiar for a number of reasons. First, let's not get ahead of ourselves. The junta that deposed the Spanish captain general in Caracas in April 1810 was not a moment strictly analogous to the 1776 Declaration of Independence in the United States. The coup was more of an assertion of Venezuelan autonomy than literal independence. This distinction was to prove a little embarrassing to Bolivar once he wound up mano a mano with the Marcus of Wellesley, Britain's foreign minister. You see, Spain was kind of a mess in 1810. Boney, that's Napoleon, he'd been running around killing people all over Europe for a couple of years before he decided to take on Spain in 1808. His Spanish adventure, called the Peninsular War, was a bit of a quagmire for old Boney, but he did manage to knock the king of Spain, Ferdinand VII, off his throne, and put in place his own brother, Joseph Bonaparte. Joe was pretty unpopular, and most Spaniards, whether in Spain or in the Spanish colonies of the New World, thought Ferdinand was still the legitimate king. I said that was among Spaniards. 
The majority of the elite in Latin America weren't people from Spain, but Creoles, people of European descent, white people, who were born in the colonies. Creoles, though, weren't even in the majority of the population as a whole, who were either mixed-race peoples, slaves, slavery was legal in Spain in 1810, or native peoples. In any event, the Creoles in Venezuela saw the accession of Joseph, that's the regency I mentioned earlier, as the perfect impetus to launch a kind of backdoor revolution that would leave them calling the shots politically, and free Venezuela from the tight grip of Spanish colonial governors. So the junta nominally had allegiance to King Ferdinand VII of Spain, even though what many of the Venezuelan Creole elite wanted, including Bolivar, was true independence. Spain, at least under Ferdinand VII, was an ally of Great Britain against Napoleon. This was why the junta sent Bolivar and his cronies across the sea to plead the Brits for help. On July 16, 1810, Bolivar and the other delegates from Caracas met the Marcus of Wellesley at his expansive estate on the edge of Hyde Park in London. Wellesley, incidentally, was the older brother of a military officer named Arthur Wellesley, who is known to history as Lord Wellington, the commander who would go on to defeat Napoleon once and for all at Waterloo in 1815. In any event, as he pleaded for British recognition of the junta, Bolivar simply couldn't help himself. He was a revolutionary at heart, committed to full independence of Venezuela from all form of Spanish rule. The idea that the junta supposedly had allegiance to Ferdinand was a fig leaf. The Marcus knew it. More damaging, Bolivar handed Wellesley official documents from the junta, which clearly stated that they were loyal to Ferdinand. Bolivar had neglected to read them before giving them to Wellesley, or launching into his harangue. The result was that Bolivar and the others wound up with egg on their faces, the British, who were allied with Ferdinand against Napoleon, couldn't well turn around and recognize a revolutionary government trying to overthrow his authority in Venezuela. But Bolivar's mission was not a failure, at least not completely. I'll tell you more about that in a few minutes. But for now, we need to understand something more basic. Who was this guy, and how did he get in this position? Simón Bolivar was definitely a son of privilege. Indeed, his family was among the wealthiest of the Creoles in Caracas, the capital of Venezuela. If the old adage is that where you go in life depends largely on where you start, well, Simón Bolivar started pretty far ahead from the word go. The Bolivar family had settled in Venezuela early in the Spanish colonial period, in the 16th century. Their wealth came from their lands. The settlers who got to a colony first usually had the best picks. We saw that with Australia in the previous episodes, and it was certainly true of Spanish America. Even before sugar became the legitimate heroine of the 18th century, the Bolivars profited from what was originally the main squeeze of economic life in Spanish America, mainly squeezing as much gold, silver, and copper out of the ground as possible, through the merciless labor of black and Native American slaves. Indeed, Bolivar's family owned the Aroa Mines, where both gold and copper were excavated with slave labor. Ironically, Bolivar himself would later lease these mines to the British to finance his wars against Spain. The Bolivar family also profited from sugar, still more slave labor. Into this lap of slave-driven privilege, Simón José Antonio de la Santísima Trinidad Bolivar y Palacios was born on July 24, 1783, in a Spanish colonial house in Caracas which is still there today. His father died when he was two. Like many rich kids, Simone was brought up by the help, specifically a slave named Hippolita, who exerted a tremendous influence on the boy. 
He was known as a wild and unruly child, and most of his playmates were slaves. Several other family deaths followed throughout Simone's early life, and until in 1795, he wound up in the care of a philosopher and tutor, Simone Rodriguez, who was a keen admirer of the same Enlightenment thinkers who influenced American revolutionaries like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. It's probably from Simone Rodriguez that the young Simone Bolivar learned the language of revolution and the ideals of liberty and egalitarianism, which were extremely radical in the late 1790s. This, combined with Bolivar's wild nature, cemented his personality and probably his future. These ideas eventually got his teacher, Simón Rodríguez, into trouble. In 1797, in Caracas, he took part in a plot to overthrow the Spanish colonial government of Venezuela. When the plot failed, Rodríguez was exiled to Jamaica. Bolivar, who just turned 15, was sent to Spain for his education. But on the way, his ship, the San Ildefonso, was waylaid in Mexico, where Bolivar, again he was all of 15, had a hot and wild love affair with a 21-year-old married woman in Veracruz. Incidentally, Bolivar's lover, Maria de Velasco, also had an affair with the famous naturalist and explorer Alexander von Humboldt, whom Bolivar would eventually get to know very well. In Europe, Simone Bolivar finally got the polish and pizzazz that he would show as an adult. He also got to know politics and the Spanish court close up. His education was entrusted to a Caracas transplant, the Marquis of Ustariz, who was a member of Spain's Supreme Council of War. Young Simone got to hang out with some pretty important people. One time he played badminton with Prince Ferdinand, the future King Ferdinand VII. As you might imagine, likely from his passionate nature, he also fell in love. By 1800, he had a serious case of the hots for one Maria Teresa Rodriguez del Toro, daughter of another prominent Caracas family who lived in Spain. Bolivar was 16, Maria was 19. Her dad, Don Bernardo, was less than impressed. He decided to whisk her off to the family's summer home in Bilbao, Spain, where Simone followed like a faithful dog. Ultimately, he seems to have won over the skeptical Don Bernardo. In between adventurous little jaunts to Paris and other places, Bolivar carried on his courtship of Maria. On May 26, 1802, they were married in Madrid. Three weeks later, they sailed for Caracas. What should have been the beginning of a happy marriage was tragically cut short. Maria Teresa quickly caught yellow fever and croaked. Bolivar basically went nuts from grief. In later years, though, he credited the death of Maria Teresa as changing his life and setting him up in politics. He wrote, quote, Had I not become a widower, my life might have been very different. I would never have become General Bolivar, nor the Liberator. When I was with my wife, my head was filled only with the most ardent love, not with political ideas. The death of my wife placed me early in the road of politics and caused me to follow the chariot of Mars. End quote. Late in 1803, Bolivar returned to Spain. Eventually, he wandered to Paris, where he hooked up not only with Alexander von Humboldt, his first girlfriend's lover, but also his old teacher, Simone Rodriguez. Small world, eh? Bolivar and Rodriguez were together in Paris, sharing a hotel room, on December 2, 1804 the day of Napoleon's garish coronation at Notre Dame Cathedral, where he snatched the crown out of the Pope's hand and crowned himself emperor. Bolivar was offended by Napoleon's arrogance. Not long after the coronation, he made a scene at a Paris dinner party, 
lapsing into an hours-long screaming rant about Napoleon's tyranny that was so disturbing to the assembled guests that Bolivar had to write a formal letter of apology. After this, he wisely decided to get out of town. He toured Europe for a while with Rodriguez, then in 1807 wound up in America, en route back to Caracas. His experiences in Paris, and especially the United States, continued to fuel his resolve that Venezuela should be free and independent. This was where things stood when Simon Bolivar returned to Caracas in the fall of 1807. It was right about that time that the man whose imperial ambitions he hated, Napoleon, first started to get entangled in the flypaper that was the Peninsular War. Boney's adventures in Spain, and especially the overthrow of the Spanish king in favor of the puppet regency, provided the spark of independence in faraway Caracas, which was already a tinderbox ready to explode. Bolivar's turn on the stage of history was about to arrive. By the beginning of the second decade, Spain's colonial empire in the New World was definitely ripe for revolution. Although they were the first European country to claim permanent colonies in the Americas, the Norse attempted colonization of Newfoundland in the 11th century didn't take, after 300 years, the Spanish Empire was getting a little long in the tooth, and everybody knew it, especially the Spanish. Spain had mismanaged her colonies almost from the beginning. Spaniards' passion for gold and silver dug from the mines in the New World by black and Native American slaves glutted the world economy and ironically brought them to the brink of financial ruin. In the 17th century, as England started to build New World colonies based on a mercantile model, the Spanish pretended to be ostriches by digging their heads into the sand and refusing even to consider modernizing their antiquated, medieval-style economy. The Inquisition, started in 1480, was sort of like the KGB of early modern Spain and its colonies. There were informers everywhere, and the Spanish crown relied on the Inquisition to keep political order and also economic order. For example, there were strict regulations on ownership of businesses by native-born Americans, by that I mean Creoles, Manufacturing was totally banned. Taxes were very high throughout the Spanish Empire, but instead of being put back into the colonial economies and local businesses, as they were in England's colonies in North America, every shiny pieces of aid that was paid over in taxes in Spanish America was shipped back to Spain. Spanish America was also weakened by racism. Native Americans were forced by law to pay tribute to the Spanish crown, usually by means of forced labor. And since the early 1500s, a large underclass, mestizos, the offspring of European Spanish and Native Americans, had developed. This in spite of the fact that sexual mixing of the races was supposedly banned by law, which meant most of these people were illegitimate. Ten percent of the population of Venezuela were slaves of African descent. Fully 50 percent of the population were descended from slaves. Even in the white community, there was a strict hierarchy, with Creoles, people from the Canary Islands, and transplanted Spaniards, all trying to claw their way to the top of an increasingly small social pyramid. This is the world that Simón Bolívar was born into. You can't blame him for seeing the opportunity of a new political order. It was pretty clear that Spain was losing its grip on its new world empire, even before Napoleon marched down and kicked in the door in Madrid. By 1808, Bolívar was one of a group of fairly radical liberals who haunted the candlelit salons of Caracas, beating their gums about independence and self-rule of Venezuela, and presumably other Spanish colonies to follow. 
there was lots of talk of juntas and revolutions. On Christmas Eve 1809, Bolivar was part of a gathering of Creole radicals who planned to march on Caracas' city hall in support of a rebellion against Spanish rule that had broken out in Peru earlier in the year. Nothing came of this uprising, but less than five months later, on Maundy Thursday 1810, a junta had indeed taken over. So now we return to Bolivar and the other Venezuelan delegates in England, where they had tried and failed to secure British recognition of their newfound autonomy. On this issue, Wellesley had told them to talk to the hand, but I told you the mission was not exactly a failure. For one thing, Bolivar had impressed upon the Brits that Venezuela really was serious about independence, real independence, not fake independence under the fig leaf of supposed allegiance to Ferdinand, even if the deposed king was Bolivar's old badminton partner. Secondly, and more importantly, while in London, Bolivar looked up an old friend, Francisco de Miranda, the old Venezuelan revolutionary, who had been agitating for independence from Spain since the 1780s. Miranda, who'd been on a number of colorful adventures in numerous countries throughout the Asian Revolution, was sort of the nerve center of the Venezuelan expatriate community in London at that time, kind of like Gertrude Stein was to the expat literati in Paris in the 1920s. Bolivar begged Miranda to come back to Venezuela with him and help cement the revolution, sort of like how Bolshevik emigres started returning from abroad in the spring of 1917. At first, Miranda refused, thinking that no one back in Venezuela would welcome him, but ultimately he gave in. In September 1810, Bolivar and Miranda, sailing on separate ships, booked passage back to South America to save the junta, if they could. It turned out Miranda was right about the kind of welcome he'd get. Despite stocking the pier with a big crowd to welcome the father of the revolution home, nobody was exactly pooping their pants with excitement when Miranda stepped off the gangplank. Even the junta, Venezuela's proto-government, sent a salutary but pretty lukewarm welcome. They didn't really want him around either. Still, there were signs of hope for a Venezuelan independence movement, despite the fact that the Juntas nominally still supported King Ferdinand VII. In the fall of 1810, elections were held, well, sort of elections, it was pretty chaotic and not really clear to me exactly who got to vote. Anyway, elections were held and a congress was established, which began meeting in March 1811. The new government was reorganized, including its military. Guess who was passed over for a high post? Bolivar had been to military schools in Spain, but in early 1811 he was far from the experienced soldier he would turn out to be. He was very active in Congress, though. There's another parallel to the Russian Revolution of 1917 here. In that revolution, Lenin remarked something to the effect of, power was laying in the streets, all someone had to do was pick it up. So it was true in Caracas in 1811. On July 1st of that year, one member of the new Congress was unmasked as a spy for the Spanish crown. The outrage over this brought the Congress to a froth, with many members, including Bolivar, saying, Enough of the fig leaf. Enough Ferdinand VII and his crappy badminton game. It's time for full and formal independence from Spain. Miranda joined the chorus. On the morning of July 5th, he read to the Congress the latest military dispatches from Spain, Napoleon's big general in Spain had just been totally clowned in battle by the Duke of Wellington. Bottom line, Napoleon would soon have to abandon Spain. What that meant is that Ferdinand, who as you remember was a king in exile, would be back in charge, and without the French to fight, he'd have the time and the men to bring the uppity Spanish colonies back into line. If there was ever a time for independence, it was now. 
the Congress acted. On July 5, 1811, the First Republic of Venezuela was proclaimed. This at last was the revolutionary moment Bolivar had been waiting for. People surging through the streets, ripping down Spanish flags, slashing portraits of King Ferdinand with knives. You know, all the fun stuff about a revolution. The less fun stuff about a revolution is the fact that, whenever you have one, whoever you're revolting against isn't going to give up without a fight. In Venezuela, the first problem was pro-Spanish royalists, some of whom revolted in Caracas shortly after the revolution. Sixteen of them were shot and their heads put on stakes all around the city, but that smelled good. That was only the beginning, though. An even bigger danger was the threat of social and racial unrest. It was only a matter of time before that touched off. The new Venezuelan Congress shot itself in the foot pretty much immediately. They drafted a constitution that turned out to be a botched job, full of compromises that left everybody unsatisfied. Slavery was still in place. Only landowners could vote. So much for this egalitarian liberty stuff. The Venezuelan constitution put power firmly in the hands of rich white men, which, if you look back through history, is usually where it ends up. The tinderbox exploded. Slave revolts started popping up everywhere. Fields were burned, haciendas looted and destroyed, slave-owning families brutally murdered. The royalists left in the countryside used the chaos as a means to rise up against the new government. The Congress sent the Marquis del Toro, the uncle of Bolivar's late wife, in command of an army to crush them. The Catholic Church, which remained loyal to Spain, sought to exploit the inequities of the new constitution. They successfully convinced a lot of the poor rural people to pledge allegiance to the King of Spain. Pretty soon, Venezuela was breaking out in civil war like pimples on a ninth grader's face. Faced with the prospect of a lengthy conflict, the Congress called upon Francisco de Miranda, the old revolutionary, who had a couple of battles, including some in the American Revolutionary War, under his belt. Taking command of an army to wipe out the royalists, Miranda did not want Bolivar to have a military post. This widened the breach that was growing between the two of them. Since he'd gotten back from Europe, Miranda was basically just becoming a huge hole. He was arrogant, never listened to anyone, and relished in throwing his weight around. Thus, Bolivar found service under the other main commander, his uncle by marriage, the Marquis del Toro. Now at last, Bolivar got a taste of battle. Colonel Bolivar did pretty well. In the summer of 1811, he fought two battles in Valencia against royalist forces, securing this key city for the Republic. Even Miranda was impressed. Just a little. The war was far from over. Everyone knew that Spain would eventually counterattack, and they held a foothold in the local population, that being the Catholic Church, which fiercely opposed independence. In the winter of 1811-1812, while the Congress tried to implement its very unequal constitution, the Spanish tried to get their ducks in a row. They sent a force of 1,500 men under the command of Juan Domingo de Monteverde, who was actually a naval captain. In early March 1812, just as the new Venezuelan constitution was supposed to go into effect, Monteverde landed on the coast. 1,500 men may not sound like much, but especially with the help of local churches, and there was a church in every little village in Venezuela, Monteverde steadily gained converts to his cause. He went out of his way to recruit blacks and mestizos, exactly the people who were most disenfranchised under the new constitution. Monteverde got what some interpreted as divine help. On March 26, 1812, which again was Maundy Thursday, the same holiday when the original coup had happened, 
the city of Caracas was utterly liquefied by an earthquake measuring 7.7 on what they used to call the Richter scale, though now it's called something different. The Caracas earthquake of 1812 was one of the biggest natural disasters of the second decade. Although the science of today would deny there's a connection, people at the time certainly believed that earthquakes and volcanic eruptions, wherever they happened in the world, were essentially contagious. In January and February of the same year, 1812, a series of earthquakes shook New Madrid in Missouri Territory, temporarily changing the course of the Mississippi River. A host of volcanic eruptions were occurring at roughly the same time, culminating with the April 1815 blockbuster at Mount Tambora, which I talked about in Episode 7. In any event, the ground shook and the mountains cracked open all over the world in the second decade, and in March 1812, in the middle of a badly timed civil war, it was Caracas's turn. The aftermath of the quake was horrific. Cathedrals and houses alike had been reduced to piles of smoking rubble. Fires broke out. A wave of looting struck the city. Even graves were robbed. By some estimates, 20,000 people were dead. Ironically, and importantly for subsequent events, the worst damage in the city seemed to be in the neighborhoods that supported the Republic. This little fact gave rise, aided mightily by sermons from the churches that were still intact, that God had punished Venezuela for trying to shake off Spanish rule. In a deeply Catholic country where most people were uneducated, this was a powerful message. It's not clear what course the revolution would have taken without the earthquake, but given the evidence, after the quake it seems pretty clear that the royalists now had the upper hand. People signed up in droves to fight under Monteverde against the Republicans. Seeing the writing on the wall, the Republic panicked. Congress quickly abandoned its constitution, which had just barely gone into effect, and decided, in what would ultimately become a hallmark of South American politics, that the only hope to save the revolution was in what we now call a strongman. Curious that today, when we use the word strongman, which is another word for dictator, we almost always end up using it to refer to someone from Latin America, whether Chile's Pinochet in the 1970s, Panama's Manuel Noriega in the 1980s, or Venezuela's own Hugo Chavez in this century. Anyway, Marcus del Toro, Bolivar's uncle by marriage, was the first would-be dictator of Venezuela. Congress offered him the job, but he refused. So, as was probably inevitable, ultimately they turned to Miranda. In another bad precedent set for Latin American politics, Venezuela's republic had technically transitioned from a democracy to a dictatorship in less than a month. All it took was a 7.7 earthquake and 20,000 dead. Democracies are fragile, folks. Many quote-unquote strongmen fancy themselves as fearsome warlords. Miranda, not so much. In fact, for the first couple of months, he largely ducked battle with Monteverde. Bolivar, in the meantime, was assigned the defense of the town of Puerto Cabello. He was not assigned the fort in the town of Puerto Cabello, a place called San Felipe Castle. That's going to become important in a minute. Bolivar cooled his heels at Puerto Cabello while war raged through the countryside. And it was not just between Miranda's Republican troops and Monteverde's Royalists. In early June, in a province called Barlovento, a huge slave revolt began in the countryside. The inequalities in the now torn-up constitution had enshrined into law were spilling out, and former slaves took bloody revenge on Creole landowners in the country. Many were killed. Columns of smoke rose into the sky from burning haciendas all over the place. Venezuela's independence, sparked in part by Simón Bolívar's idealistic hopes, was turning into a bloody catastrophe. The slave revolt convinced Miranda that the war was a lost cause. 
Originally, he'd been in favor of emancipating slaves, at least those who agreed to join the Republican cause. But now he was thinking better of it. Miranda wrote in a letter, quote, As much as I desire liberty and independence for the new world, I fear anarchy. May God prevent my beautiful land from succumbing to another Santo Domingo. Better would it be for slaves to suffer the barbarous, imbecilic rule of Spain for another century. End quote. Santo Domingo, by the way, is a reference to the slave rebellion in the French colony of Saint-Domingue, now known as Haiti, in 1804, a bloody event that shocked nearly every pale face living in a slave society, particularly in the United States and in Spanish colonies where slavery was still legal. Miranda was having second thoughts about the entire revolution. The key event that collapsed the First Republic began, believe it or not, with a wedding. It happened on June 30, 1812. Bolivar, as you recall, was in charge of the defense of the town of Puerto Cabello. However, an officer named Ramon Eberic was in charge of the fort at Puerto Cabello, called San Felipe Castle, which had huge stores of ammunition behind its walls. Eberic was due to get married that night, June 30th. Eberic's second-in-command, a guy named Francisco Vinoni, secretly sympathized with the royalists. When his boss left the fort to go get married, Vinoni took over. He released the Spanish prisoners in the fort's dungeons and even ran up the Spanish flag over San Felipe Castle. Then he issued an ultimatum to Bolivar, surrender the town of Puerto Cabello, or Venoni would start shooting the place up with cannons from the fort. Bolivar, horrified at this act of treason, refused. He had only 120 men. When Venoni started firing, suddenly he had 119 men, then 118, then a few less, and so forth and so on. By the next day, under siege from San Felipe Castle, Bolivar had 40 men left. He tried valiantly to defend the main plaza of Puerto Cabello, but Venoni had the guns and the cannonballs, and Bolivar didn't have much to throw against him. To make matters worse, news came that Monteverde was marching on the city with 500 fresh troops. On July 6, 1812, Simon Bolivar, five of his officers, and three soldiers, the only survivors of the battle, finally gave up. Puerto Cabello. They escaped in a ship, but now the Spanish and the Royalists held the most impregnable fortress in Venezuela, stocked with plenty of guns, supplies, and firepower. It was pretty much over. Miranda, who as you remember was already souring on the revolution, decided to negotiate with Monteverde. On July 25th, he agreed to Monteverde's terms. There would be an amnesty, and Republicans who wanted to leave the country would be allowed to do so but the Spanish flag was again flying over Venezuela. The revolution had failed. Bolivar was horrified. He saw Miranda's capitulation as treason against Venezuela. A few nights later, Bolivar and several of his lieutenants surrounded the house where Miranda was staying and arrested him in the middle of the night. Miranda is said to have remarked to Bolivar, All you know is how to make trouble. Although he was opposed to Spanish rule, Bolivar was happy to hand the trade of Miranda over to Spanish forces. It was revenge for betraying the revolution. As it turned out, it was also Bolivar's ticket out of what might otherwise have been a Spanish dungeon of his own waiting for him. With the intercession of a powerful friend of the Bolivar family, who, as you remember, was well-connected in Spain and in Venezuela, Monteverdi was convinced to give Bolivar a passport and allow him to leave the country. Monteverdi saw the arrest of Miranda as a service to the Spanish crown. Bolivar, of course, didn't see it that way, but at least he could get the hell out of town without further ado. 
Exile is an invariable and romantic part of every revolutionary story. It is part of Bolivar's. In retrospect, it's kind of amazing he got off as well as he did. But whatever the reasons, or luck, that befell him, on August 27, 1812, Simón Bolívar sailed aboard a Spanish ship toward the island of Curaçao. He had with him a servant, some luggage, and two young relatives, José Félix and Francisco Rivas. He was already plotting his inevitable return. Monteverde and the Spanish had made a grave mistake, one that would change world history. They let go the guy who would eventually bring down their empire for good. The story of Simón Bolívar will be continued in part two of this series. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes. The vast majority of listeners to Second Decade have found us on iTunes, and it will greatly increase our reach. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. Also check out the other great history podcasts on the Recorded History Network. Podcasts like The Human Circus, Dead Ideas, The Asian Napoleon, Art History Babes, Explorers, History in Hindsight, and Stuff What You Tell Me. And remember, I have an audio drama podcast, science fiction, called Double Perigee, which is out now. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. You can also read a lot of history and a lot of other stuff at my personal website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include Bolivar, American Liberator by Marie Arana, Simon & Schuster, 2013. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night.